Hello and welcome at the PAVE podcast, created for the professional working to end the violence against women and children. I'm Alianne, your host, and today I'm honored to announce that Jessica Eaton is here to inspire us today. She is an engaging, passionate speaker, lecturer, researcher and writer in the fields of sexual violence and mental health. With a career history in the management of victim and witness services in the criminal justice system, training and managing rape counseling services, setting up the first male mental health center in the UK, and training police, social workers, health staff, counselors, psychologists, and local authority staff in child sexual abuse and safeguarding. If you enjoyed today's episode, you could really help us out by giving us a rating at the iTunes store. You can find the show notes, links and references at professionalsagainstviolence.com slash blog. But first, let's get started. Welcome to the PAVE podcast, Jessica. In 2015, you started the first male mental health center in the UK. Can you tell me why you founded it and what kind of males come to the mental health center? Okay, yeah. So we set the Eaton Foundation up in 2013 originally um was just a concept it was an idea we we had um lost my husband's dad we had been to the funeral that day um and we were sat on the floor eating pizza um trying to figure out what had gone wrong you know like how how would we how would we we felt like we'd let him die that you know he'd really struggled he died in a homelessness refuge of um uh, overdose, accidental overdose of drugs, alcohol, prescription and um, non-prescription drugs. And he was 52. He was very vulnerable, um, had a lot of problems, had a lot of things that he was worried about and had a lot of difficult life experiences. And we'd done so much over the years to try and support him. And we, I, kind of, I think we maybe felt like we'd failed. Um, so we we were sort of sat discussing what had gone wrong and how we'd struggled and what we could do to make that better. What what could we do in the future so that other men didn't feel as isolated um, and as stigmatised when they seek help for their mental health? Um, so we set the organisation up. Um, we called it the Eaton Foundation, which obviously is our surname, but was also... Um, Neil's surname my um, husband's dad so we we named it after him Um, and it quickly became overwhelmed (laughs) is the only way I can explain it because I think we knew we knew that there were men out there that weren't getting any support that that felt that they couldn't talk about their emotions and the things they were going through but I don't think we realized that it was going to take off the way it did so I think quite quickly we probably had a caseload of maybe about 30 men and then within a year it was maybe more like 80 and now we hold probably about 120 to 150 men at any one time so in 2015 we took over a really large abandoned property in Staffordshire um, in the Midlands in England and um, it was it had been derelict for about 12 years we got it really cheap <laughs> you could put your foot through the floorboards and all the windows were smashed um so we we took we took over and, and got money together to turn it into the first male mental health and well-being center in the uk but when we did that we didn't actually know that that's what we'd done because we assumed there must be a male mental health center somewhere you know we just thought we were just 
set in another one up. <laughs> um, so then the, the UK media and press sort of got hold of it and were saying, you know, it's the first one in the country. And me and my husband were like, what? <laughs> we had no idea. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's, I can't believe how much, I still can't believe how much it's grown. Um, so we now, we, what we've learned and, and what we've built is a whole person approach to male mental health and well-being. Um, where once the men come to us, they don't have to go anywhere else because in-house we have counselling, psychology, we have debts, we have housing, benefits, um, money advice, uh, relationship advice, self-esteem workshops, we have trainings, qualification, um, and then we have job advice and careers and, and all sorts of things. So it's all in one place. And they can access us for as long as they want. So we've got some men that have been accessing us a few times a week for three years. Um, and so we have no cut-off point. It's just, we're just there if, if they need us. So they can dip in and out. And how many do, uh, professionals work at the Eden Foundation? So we now have four paid members of staff. Only one of those is full-time. So mostly we have part-time. And then we have 12 volunteers that work probably about 20 hours a week. Although we only, we don't ask them for that amount of free work, um, but they're just, they've, they've just so dedicated. I'm so impressed by them. I'm always in awe of them whenever I go down to visit the center because they have, we put them through a lot of training and a lot of qualifications before we allow them to work with, you know, people that are in crisis. Um, but once they get into it, I think they just, they they must love it because they they just they're all all the time <laughs> we opened on christmas day and they all turned up all of our volunteers volunteered on christmas day it's amazing it, well it sounds like a really rewarding job and um but a lot of work but um, mm. next to this you do do a lot of other things too can you tell us a little bit more about it yeah so um yeah, quite a busy bee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's one way of putting it. I've started telling people that I'm a time lord <laughs> and just not to tell anyone. <laughs> um, yes, so I, I specialise um, primarily in forensic psychology in sexual violence. Um, I'm an independent national specialist in um, all forms of sexual violence, really, but also in, in broader um topics in forensic psychology so i'm a doctoral researcher in forensic psychology at the center for criminological and forensic psychology at the university of birmingham where i specialize in victim blaming of women and girls and the way that society has developed to blame women and girls when they experience abuse and sexual violence but also that we have taught them for a long time to blame themselves so even when society doesn't directly blame them there's lots of evidence to show that they're very quick to blame themselves anyway um, and that those two things become intertwined over a period of time so um, I'm very very dedicated to sexual violence I've got a background like you said sort of in training so I've been writing lectures training courses resources and speeches and conference workshops and things like that in sexual violence for about five or six years now um so it's i think for me victim blaming is my main area of expertise and where my passion lies but because victim blaming is made up of so many 
different societal factors and all the different ways that that can occur it means that I end up having a really broad overview of sexual violence because actually victim blaming is common to all forms of abuse and violence. But of all these topics out there, why victim blaming? Why victim blaming? I think there's a number of reasons. Um, one of them is my own personal experience. So not a lot of people know this um, because I try to keep personal and professional separate. Some people know But I was um, sexually abused between 11 and 18 by lots of different people. Um, between 11 and 13 was by l just lots of people. I probably don't even know how many. But then between 13 and 18 was one person um, who I was with. And um, I, I, I remember being interviewed by the police and they were like, how many times has this happened? And I was like, how long's a piece of string? I have no idea how many times I've been raped or sexually abused. So I, I, how, would you, how would I answer that question? Um, so part of it is because I experienced victim blaming from every angle possibly imaginable, from my own parents, from my wider family, from my siblings, from my best friends, from my um, perpetrator's family and friends, from the police, from the health system, from just everywhere I went. Um, I just wasn't seen as a credible victim. Um, and I never set out to become an expert in victim blaming after that. There was no sort of, I am now going to go on and do this because this happened to me. But what happened was that um, a few years later, I started volunteering in a court um, because I always felt that I wanted to give something back. I never knew what it was. So I started um, to volunteer in a court and it just so happened that the only day I could volunteer was a Friday. And the Friday happened to be domestic violence and sexual violence trials all day. And at first I thought, oh my gosh, I don't know how I'm going to cope with this. Um, and I very quickly realized that victim blaming is just unfortunately par for the course. It's just something that happens to pretty much every person that I saw come through my court um, for years. And it was just this common experience that either their friends and family had told them it was their fault, the perpetrator had told them it was their fault, the police had told them it was their fault, the health staff had told them it was their fault, social workers had told them it was their fault, and then they were in court being cross-examined by a defence solicitor who was telling them that they either made it up or it was their fault. And so after being in the field for about three or four years, I decided to apply to do a PhD where I could focus on how we can reduce this constant um, experience of victim blaming for people that have been through abuse and sexual violence because it just seems to be never-ending. No, that's true. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your personal experience with us. That's, that feels very special. And it's only, it's just in the beginning phase, and that's what I try to say. Um, this field where you're in, it's very interesting because there's so much else to discover and there's so much left to do. <laughs> What are you trying to accomplish at the moment? Is there something special going on? Um, what am I trying to accomplish at the moment? I have so many things <laughs> going on at the moment. Um, I think my What I'm focusing on right now is I've just finished developing um, a psychometric scale of measurement of victim blaming. And that means that I've developed a set of um, 
questionnaires and, and items that we can test on the general public to see what their real views are around who they think is to blame for sexual violence. Um, and it's, it, there isn't one like this um, anywhere else. So when it's finished, it'll be one of a kind. Um, it took me seven months to write <laughs> and I'm just in the process of testing it to make sure that it's valid and it's reliable. And then I'm going to um, use it with a, probably a sample of, of a, maybe 20 to 30,000 people in the UK to see what the real views are around victim blaming. And are, is there a particular type of sexual offence that lots of people believe, no, that definitely wasn't that person's fault? And are there particular offences where actually quite a lot of people think, well, you know, I believe that that victim led that to happen or they deserved that to happen to them or they should have done something differently. So at the moment, I think it would be the psychometric measurement of victim blaming. But I've, um, I'm also writing a new book with a, um, a woman called Louise Roseby and she experienced uh, child sexual exploitation throughout her childhood and adolescence and part of her adult life. Um, she came to me a few years ago and she actually did not know that she had been an, um, a victim of abuse or exploitation at all. And only through conversation had we come to the conclusion that in fact she was not a sex worker. She'd always thought she was a prostitute. Um, and we were talking about prostitution and choice and consent and freedom. And she eventually came to the conclusion that actually having spoken to me and talked about it, she realised that she was not a child prostitute at all, that actually she'd been abused and exploited. Um, and she came to me recently and said, look, I want to write a book about this. And will you write it with me? And she wants to write from her perspective. And then she wants me to write it from a psychologist's perspective around what was at play and why she might have felt that way and why she blamed herself, why she didn't acknowledge it. And we're going to co-write it and then edit it together and, and give like two perspectives. So you've got professional perspective and then her real words about how she felt and what happened and why maybe she didn't realize that she, she was being abused that whole time. She always thought she was a prostitute because that's what she was told. So that, I think that's a really special piece of work. I'm really excited about that. And I'm, I'm, so, I'm so proud of her. So I just think that's going to be amazing. I think that's something I really want to read. If you have a link uh, when that, by the time that it's finished, then I will make sure to uh, share it with everybody. And um, about research you mentioned er earlier, is that something you would like to uh, bring out internationally too in a while? Yeah, I think um, my doctoral studies look at um, victim blaming in the UK. However, when I was writing it and whilst I've been writing my thesis, I'm very aware of cultural differences, of religious differences, of differences all over the world. So I've been making sure that when I'm writing, I am purposely seeking out studies from all over the world rather than just keeping it really um, sort of like UK centric or US centric even because a lot of the studies come from US and UK. And I just think that we're missing so much rich experience if I just leave it there so I've been learning a lot um, about all of the different understanding and the concept of victim blaming all over the world and in lots of different cultures so I think that um, 
the victim blaming work that I've been doing, once I've tested the psychometric scale and I know that it works on UK populations um, and potentially US populations, it would be a really good idea to then look at whether it needs changing and whether it would need adapting for lots of different cultures and populations, uh, where the thoughts and the values or belief systems are very different. The other part of my work that I think I would really be interested in taking international is my work around interviewing women about their experiences of victim blaming and whether they feel that victim blaming and self-blame contributes to re-victimization because I'm doing some interviews this summer with women um, around that topic but I'm also then going to be interviewing the professionals and the counsellors and the psychologists that they've been working with about what their experience was about how they've helped women to realize that it definitely was not their fault and how are they doing that because if you think a perpetrator has embedded it within them that it's their fault and then potentially their support network and then on top of that maybe an authority and then on top of that society at large how are our counselors and our support workers and our professionals managing to break that down how are they doing that that's incredible so i i want to learn about how that's happening so i'd be amazed um, if I was ever given the opportunity to do that in other countries as well so I could see whether it was deconstructed or constructed differently in each place and in each culture that'd be pretty that'd be pretty interesting <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering when you are old and looking back to your life what do you want to have accomplished and what is the desired outcome of your work yeah that's an amazing question thank you um, <laughs> I really like that so I think I would if I was older and I was looking back I think I would want to know that I'd been part of creating a society where um, I think one one thing that really bothers me is that I still see sex in society as taboo and I think part of that is contributing to this huge issue around sexual violence because um, we've not got a generation of critical thinkers we've got a generation of young people coming up that are absorbing sex through the media through uh, society at large through mass media through advertisement through music through film and they are learning a lot about sex through porn as well so I definitely want to be part of creating a society where we talk about sex all the time where we talk about sexual violence all the time where we talk about power and we talk about manipulation and we talk about abuse and what that means um, so I think that would be from a professional point of view that I would want to be <laughs> the outcome of my work is to be the little voice in the head of professionals and the public and the government that says, are you blaming the victim here? <laughs> every time they write a new policy or every time they bring in a new law or every time they try and argue that it was, you know, a woman's fault. So she should have done this differently. I would love to be the little voice that nags them for the rest of their life um, <laughs> that they're potentially blaming victims of abuse and sexual violence um but i think from a personal point of view i want to be able to look back and know that i've raised my sons to be as critical as i am about gender and about um patriarchy and sexism and they're already on their way i have incredibly critical six and eight year old sons <laughs> i can so relate to that i'm the mom of 10 year old twins boys too Ah, and I noticed that they pick up quite a bit of the activism part of my work 
of course I only share age appropriate things, but it makes me really proud when I see that they too stand up for what is right. Yeah. Yeah, so it I, is. I, it, it is definitely. What are currently and professionally the most pressing issues or challenges you face? I think at the moment, um, I, so I've recently resigned from a job that I love. I resigned at Christmas and it was because of some of the issues in the field of sexual violence. I decided that I had to go independent to say the things that I needed to say and do the things that I needed to do. Um, and so I would say one of the most pressing issues for me at the moment and in this field is the return of insidious, evolved, more socially acceptable ways of victim blaming children, especially that are being sexually abused and sexually exploited. So what we've moved away from is saying they're a child prostitute, they deserve it. But instead, we're saying things like, if you just did this, then you wouldn't get abused. Or if you just learn this, then you'll know what a perpetrator acts like, and then you'll be able to protect yourself. And actually, all we've done is we've shifted the way that we victim blame. We've not actually stopped victim blaming at all. Um, and I'm hugely opposed to the um, approach that we're currently taking in child sexual exploitation, especially in the UK, where we have managed to somehow convince ourselves that if we just go and tell children all about CSE then CSE will end because the children will then know what CSE is so they'll be able to safeguard themselves from abuse um, so this at the moment is one of the most pressing issues because what we've now got is a lot of young people and children that are sick to death of hearing you know internet safety messages healthy and unhealthy relationships messages and it's because they can tell that we are putting the responsibility on them to not be abused. And we're saying to them, do this, do this, don't do this, don't go there, otherwise you might be raped. That's not okay. Um, and it's, it's, that's really bothering me at the moment. And then the other thing I think that is one of the most pressing issues is the lack of testing and the lack of real science in the interventions that we're using with children that have been sexually abused and that have been exploited and that we're just, we're, I said something recently and somebody pulled a face and I, I described it as have a bash, like have a bash at it practice because it's just like, oh, I've, I've developed this framework, I've developed this risk assessment, I've developed this intervention, let's just use it on children, what could possibly go wrong? And I don't, I, I won't, I will not collude with that. So I, it's, that's, not got down, that's not gone down very well recently, but <laughs> I, I will stand by it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, is there a way um, we can support you in your work? What I like to do, I think the best way to support me is, is doing really simple things like just following me on Facebook and on Twitter because I often put up a lot of discussion posts and debates and I'm quite open to different discussions with different people where they feel differently to me. So this morning I had a really long conversation with a guy um, on Twitter who I follow who identifies as a paedophile um, and he openly talks about, he's anonymous obviously, but he talks about the way that he feels as a paedophile and that, about his own sexual offences and about his life and what it feels like to be on the sex offenders register and um, how he controls his thoughts and feelings about abusing children and I would never have met somebody like that if it weren't for Twitter and I ended up having such an interesting long private conversation with him about 
his views versus my views versus research and the current strategies that are used with sex offenders and whether he felt they worked and how he felt we could improve and things like that. And I, and I found myself thinking, yeah, this is, the, this is why I love social media because there's all sorts of bad stuff that can happen on social media, but there is no way I would have met him otherwise and heard his, his half of that story. There's no way I would have heard his views otherwise. So I have a Facebook page that everyone can get involved in. I put videos up on there quite a bit and I have public access seminars in the UK, so you, can, you don't have to be at university, you don't have to be an academic, you don't have to be a professional, you can just come along once a month to my lectures and seminars and just get involved with discussion and debate, because I feel that there's so much interesting research and education and information out there about sexual violence, but it tends to be like hidden in really expensive conferences. So I started doing public access stuff. So I, I've quite enjoyed doing that. I've met lots of people that way too. I will share your handles in the show notes. And Thank if you, you can share the public uh, events with me, then I will share those two in the blog and show notes and on my Twitter and Facebook page. I, I'm sure people will, uh, from the podcast will try to follow you as much as possible. And what is something you discovered that changed the way you look at things? Oh, my, my answer to that is feminism. <laughs> 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 Because I, so I'm 26 now and I feel that even though I was definitely not part of the generation that's now struggling with social media because we just didn't have it and I just missed it, like just, just, just missed it. Um, didn't have Facebook, didn't have Snapchat, didn't have Twitter, didn't have anything like that. So you know, yes, sexual violence was going on. Yes, you could watch porn on your computer. Um, but it just wasn't as prevalent as it is now. And I don't think I ever truly understood um, anything really about my own sexual violence or about society or, or anything really. And feminism really helped to change my perspectives on, on the whole world. Um, it, it helped me to understand objectification of women and girls. Um, it helped me to understand that the gender roles that we talk about that harm women are also harming men and harming our boys. Um, and that they're getting messages about women and girls that are also then harming women and girls, but also harming themselves in, in relationships and in their own sex lives, in their own intimate relationships with their you know, with females and with other males, because again, it, it sort of links into what I do with the Eaton Foundation. It's, it's all sort of, it's all related. So objectification, hypersexualization of the media. I think when I started reading a lot in, um, I started reading a lot by like, Roxane Gay um, and by Julie Bindel and people like that. And I, was start, I started to really rethink what I was seeing in the media all the time, like music videos where the blokes are in a full suit and wearing like a coat and then they're wearing, you know, they're, they look freezing and next to them are eight women with bikinis on. And I, and when I was growing up, nobody ever taught me to be critical of that. I just used to think, oh, that's what I need to look like. That's what I need to be. I need to be like that. Um, and I remember when I was in school, I made a pact with a friend called Louise and we made, we made a pact that we would go to university and we would be strippers and pole dancers to pay our tuition fees because we just thought that that was what we could be, you know, that we would be exotic dancers and that we could make money through selling what we look like and through sex and through sexualization. 
And I remember being, I don't know, we must have been about 14 when we said that. And we had no idea what we were talking about. Um, but it, make, it sort of makes you realise that actually when I was growing up, that hypersexualization was just totally normal to me. And the objectification of women and girls was just, just totally normal to me. And nobody had taught me to be critical of it until I found feminism, probably about, probably about five years ago. And I have read, I, no, not read, I have inhaled so many books since then, and so much research, so, and listened to so many women since then. And it has completely changed the way that I look at the world. And I think it, hopefully is positively affecting the way that my boys will grow up i often joke that they'll either end up incredibly feminist or in therapy <laughs> <laughs> i have to know did you become a pole dancer no i had well i i don't know if it, do you know something no um i had my my first son um whilst i was being sexually abused so i was 16 when i had my first son of course you're 20 yeah yeah so i'm so, so and my son is um just coming up for nine um and, my, and then my other son is is uh six and he's with my husband but um my first son is is by my abuser um so i i dropped out of school um i i didn't finish high school i didn't do any further education i um you know i sort of was very isolated and, and in a lot of danger we both were until we ran away when i was about 18 and my son was about five months old we ran away um so no i didn't however what i did do which is which is related is that when i ran away and, and managed to get out of the abuse i did not see myself as worth anything more so i became a sex worker quite briefly and i used to sort of just um you know, have, have sex for, for a few hundred quid if I needed something. And I never saw that as a problem. I didn't, I, I definitely didn't feel vulnerable. I just felt that that was all I was worth. That was all I ever was. So why couldn't I make money out of it? And now looking back, I realize that part of that was because of that objectification and sexualization of myself and because of the sexual violence and the abuse that I genuinely did not think that I was worth anything more. And I didn't think that there was any other way to, to make money and to look after us. I just thought that was it. Um, which is, is sometimes it feels like talking about somebody else's life that it's so far away from where I am now. And it actually wasn't that long ago. So it's, I'm, t I'm nearly 27. So, and that happened when I was 18. So it's not that long ago, really. <laughs> Now that's that's always always amazing to me too because I ran away with my children. I, we fled when I was, um, I believe, twenty one, from mm. uh, our abuser, and um, I'm now thirty one, and we are free for like ten years now. But of course, uh, abuse didn't stop after we fled. But it seems like another lifetime. It seems yeah long ago so i really can relate to that and and i was wondering you mentioned um reading a lot of uh books and uh, it, it shows um and that you uh, have some women you admire and i was wondering who are the women that inspire you the most women that inspire me the most hmm i would have to say especially recently the women that inspire me the most are 
women that I keep seeing standing up and protesting and campaigning right now because I don't have women necessarily in in my family to look up to or or you know like a lot of people I, I would probably say like their mums or, or women in their family but for me it's the women around me so the women that I work with are incredible such intelligent critical strong women that have an opinion and know why they have that opinion but are also well willing to debate it and argue it so I've got scientists around me that I work with the women that I study with at university the other other women in my department that are psychologists that have have come from all different walks of life that inspire me to learn from them I, I learn from them constantly there are women that I've worked with recently um, a, a particular colleague of mine from the job that I've, I've recently resigned from I can honestly say she probably changed my life because she believed in me and she knew what I was capable of and let me do it um, and it's definitely contributed to who I am today there's you know women that I've met recently that are directors of research that are national specialists in psychotherapy that have, have gone out there and said, this is who I am, this is what I know, and I'm going to teach you about it. And they, I just love listening to them. They really inspire me, and I just feel so powerful when I'm surrounded by them. Can you share a quote or something that will encourage the listener in keeping up the good work? Yeah, I was thinking about this. Um, <laughs> because my answer to this is probably going to be really strange, but... Um, <laughs> So one of my favourite quotes is actually Latin. It's really short. It's non decur duco. And it means, I am not led, I lead. Wow. And I absolutely adore it. And actually, when I ran away from my perpetrator, I had it tattooed across my back yes. um, when I was 18. And um, I still love it to this day because I knew from then that I was not going to be led by anyone or anything by any perspective by any you know um, ideology that I was always going to lead from the front that I was always going to have my own opinion and that I would stand by it and that I would do what I needed to do to get by and I would do what I needed to do to be who I needed to be in the world so non decur deco is my quote <laughs> wow thank you for sharing this with us we reached the end of the show i really want to thank you for coming on to the show and um for inspiring us um with your story and um being vulnerable and being honest and uh, truthful i, I really love this uh, episode so thank you for being here with us today well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's really, really kind of you and I've really enjoyed it. I'm really glad you did. And I want to thank the listener too for tuning in. You can find the show notes, links and references at www.professionalsagainstviolence.com slash blog. And if you like this episode, please give it a rating in the iTunes store. We will come back shortly with an all new episode of the PAVE podcast. See you then. Bye-bye.